0: Welcome to State at the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Every Monday night here on State at the Bay, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. It's back to school time, and we're continuing our conversation around what parents and students can expect for the new school year. Last week, we talked about San Francisco schools, and tonight, we'll turn our attention to Oakland. Then, we'll discuss the breakup of the Pac-12 Athletic Conference. What does the shakeup mean for Stanford and UC Berkeley? Finally, we'll turn back the clock to 1850 San Francisco and hear why our city was named the Paris of the Pacific. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Two weeks ago, over 34,000 students in the Oakland Unified School District returned to the classroom. It's not been an easy few years for Oakland Unified, Multiple teacher strikes, a pandemic, learning loss, and a school board with high turnover, all of that has added to the challenges. As part of our Back to School series, we're looking at what the new year has in store for Oakland. I'm pleased to be joined by Mike Hutchinson. He's the president of Oakland Unified School Board and a proud product of Oakland, Oakland's public schools. Welcome to State of the Bay, Mike.
1: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I wanted to start with teachers because that's the heart of any school. And at the start of this school year, there are around 70 teacher vacancies in the district. Most of those are positions in the bilingual and special education classrooms. But I'm curious, how does the district plan to fill those vacancies?
1: Well, we're going to uh, continue working to fill these vacancies. And and actually, in in the larger sense, uh, we've done much better this year than we've done in previous years. Um, We started the year with almost all of our vacancies filled. Uh, For a district our size, this is actually a very low number to start the year with. And one of the reasons is we are coming off a year where we have just given our teachers a historic raise in their new contract. And so for two years as a school district and as a school board, we worked to create the financial position for the district to give our teachers a 15% raise this year. And so we are already seeing um, that pay dividends, but there are many positions that are extremely difficult for us to hire for, especially in the context of a teacher shortage nationally. Um, So I am hopeful that, uh, We will continue filling those positions, and within a couple of weeks, we will be uh, 100% staffed.
0: And do you think that it's um, just the teacher shortage generally, or is there something specific about Oakland Unified that might be an impediment to hiring for those positions?
1: Well, I don't think it's something specifically about Oakland Unified, but it's definitely something specific about Oakland. Um, We're also living in the midst of an affordability crisis. Mm. So even though we've given our teachers a 15 percent raise this year, which finally brings Oakland teachers to about the median in Alameda County, um, it's nowhere near enough pay for most of our teachers to be able to afford a house in the neighborhoods that they work. And so we're up against um, a lot of conditions that we have no control of as a school district. uh, But we're very proud of the new contract that we will be able to sign with our teachers.
0: Yeah. And that contract, as you said, um, offered a a significant increase in wage and it's retroactive as well. So the base salary, what is that about? Sixty two thousand now?
1: Um, it, it matters, it matters what, what number you use. Uh, mm-hmm. but starting salary is mid 50,000 and OUSD has always had one of the best benefit packages. Um, and so even before the new contract, uh, the total compensation package averaged over $100,000 and now we've seen an increase. And I, I think it's important, uh, when we're looking at it to understand that what we did as a school district is 10, we used 10% of our general fund For this raise for our teachers. And so we're really proud of the amount of money we were able to carve out for that raise, but it is not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. And without increased support from the state and the federal government, it's very hard for a local district to be able to do more.
0: Do you think you'll get that support from state and federal um, governments to add more funding?
1: Um, I'm, I'm always hopeful. And one of the things that's really changed over the last three years is a huge increase in funding for public education, especially in California during the pandemic. And so for us in Oakland, we were able to use those COVID relief dollars to largely stabilize the district financially. So that's what put us in a position to be able to um, manage our finances in a way to carve out such a raise for our teachers. But this is going to be an ongoing fight going forward.
0: Right. And are those COVID funds going to dry up or are you anticipating to replace them with other dollars?
1: Um, They will dry up. I am hopeful they'll be replaced by other dollars. But what we're really looking at as a school district now is we are stable right now. But in two years, our district has to look different or the financial situation might start to change. And so we're hopeful now uh, with the start of this new year that we're really entering into a two-year phase of of really restructuring and redesigning our school district so we can look different in two years.
0: And what's the deadline of two years about?
1: Um, That's when the last of the COVID relief dollars, the federal COVID relief dollars, run out. Mm -hmm. And so uh, without getting too far in the weeds, There's really been a huge increase in state funding in California for public education during the pandemic. A lot of that funding will be ongoing, but some of that funding was one-time dollars through grants. Mm -hmm. And then also the federal government gave a lot of one-time dollars, which um, all of those phases will finally run out in about two years.
0: Um, there's, how does that factor into the fact that the the school district has been in state receivership since 2003? Does that impact your ability to forecast budgets?
1: Um, yes, but, you know, the, the bigger story of what's happened in Oakland has been the community has rejected the policies of the past and has installed new leadership. So over the last four-year uh, election cycle uh, in Oakland, we replaced all seven school board directors. Um, then in January, I was elected board president, uh, since January, we have rescinded school closures. We've given our teachers a historic raise and we have passed a balanced budget that brought us closer to finally leaving state receivership, which we're hopeful that we can leave over the next 12 months. And so we've been able to kind of thread in uh, a needle that folks used to say was impossible. And a lot of this is because The community rejected the policies of school closures and privatization, and the new board that's come in, we've installed new policies along with a superintendent and senior staff that's working with us, and we've really been able to put the district in a new position. Hmm.
0: Well, you, as I mentioned in the intro, are a proud product of Oakland schools. Your mom was a kindergarten teacher for, I think, 40 years, and your dad was a vice principal at Oakland Tech. What does it mean to you to be able to restore faith in Oakland um, district schools?
1: Um, I've, I've been on a mission, and <laughs> really, you know, since uh, two of the schools that I worked at were closed in 2012. And it really forced me to switch from working directly with youth and with families to, um, moving into, uh, education advocacy, which led me to running for the school board. Um, I am extremely proud that I'm in this position. Um, it means a lot to me. And I am very, very hopeful that we have turned the corner as a school district. And I think it's telling. It's not just me, our superintendent. Um is an Oakland product. Our general counsel is an Oakland product. Our chief of staff is an Oakland product. Uh, many of our principals are now Oakland products, and so there's really been a large number of us that have reengaged with our school district. And now that we're finally in these positions to have influence over policy, we are really dedicated to taking our school district and our city in a new direction.
2: Mm. Well,
0: having been educated within and working also in the system, I wondered if you had particular insight into two problems that seem to affect not just Oakland, but a lot of school districts, especially since the pandemic, and that's absenteeism and low enrollment. Um, Let's start with low enrollment. What is Oakland trying to do to increase enrollment in its schools?
1: Well, for enrollment, actually, in Oakland, the story has been positive over the last two years, especially. Um, Oakland for 15 years had the highest rate of charter schools in the state of California. And that's one of the things that the new school board has changed. And so last year, in terms of enrollment, uh, Oakland OUSD only lost less than 1% of our enrollment, which was right in line with state averages, which is basically in line with demographic shifts. So we haven't seen an extreme loss in enrollment. Um, I'm very excited to announce uh, that on our first day of school, uh, we exceeded our enrollment projections by over 800 students. So we've done a good job of stabilizing our enrollment. For us in Oakland, a lot of that is through the expansion of our uh, transitional kindergarten, our TK program. And we're hopeful that we'll continue in that direction. Absenteeism is a huge problem, though. And um, it's something that's historically been a problem in Oakland. It's really been exacerbated. Uh, through the pandemic and after the pandemic. And so that is one of our focuses now as a school district and as a school board this school year is really trying to focus on absenteeism and raise our attendance rates.
0: And how will you do that?
1: (laughs) Well, that's the magic question. (laughs) And so one of the things, um, you know, a big part of it is stabilizing our school district. And I think we've, we've gone about that. One of the next phases now that we have is we're entering into a period of school redesign. And so in order to improve our schools, we really need to redesign them um, for our modern times that we're living in. And some of that redesign will be culturally relevant curriculum. Some of that redesign will be um, greater community and parent engagement in our schools, Uh, We've had some good successes in our high schools with our Pathways programs, which really um, focuses on uh, tailoring a program so a student can have a career after high school graduation. We need to continue to expand on those. Um, But more than anything else, we need to make our schools the kind of places where our students and our families want to be every day. And so it's going to be a, uh, a longer process, but it is definitely a, a focus for us going into the school year.
0: Well, you're the president of the school board and you've got a lot on your plate. I'm curious, how should the community measure whether you and the board have been successful? You know, in, in a year's time, in two years time, what should the community look at to say, OK, Mike Hutchinson did a good job or Mike Hutchinson and the board leave a little bit to be desired?
1: I think there's a couple of basic ways. I mean, there's always the basic question: Are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I think uh, I'm really proud of the uh, of the work that I've done while I've been on the board, um, helping to guide the district through a pandemic, and and really helping to stabilize a lot of parts of our district. Uh, I think another way that we always need to uh, hold our elected officials accountable is whether or not I lived up to the platform that I ran on. I ran on a platform of ending school closures and ending the financial mismanagement within OUSD. And I'm very proud of the state of our district right now when it comes to that. Um, But in the, but in the end, what really matters is our families and our communities experience within our schools And so I'm hopeful that over time, more and more of our families will have a more and more positive experience. And it's always going to be about the outcomes that our schools produce.
0: Well, we'll have to leave it there. And um, thank you so much for joining us, Mike.
1: Great, thank you for having me.
0: Well, I hope you'll come back in two years time and we'll see how everything went. Um, That was Mike Hutchinson, he's the president of the Oakland Unified School Board. Coming up next on State of the Bay, the storied Pac-12 athletic conference has seen defections by five schools, but Cal and Stanford remain. What happened and can the conference survive? We're talking to a panel of sports journalists and hearing from you. Do you think Cal or Stanford should remain in the Pac-12? That's right after the break, stay with us.
1: My name is Lori Feldman.
2: We recently reached out to KALW members to find out why they support the station.
1: I love Joanne Mars' Folk Music of the World. Where else can you hear this kind of music? It is wonderful. And I also love the blues show on Sunday, and I access them from
2: wherever I am. Become a member today. Just go to kalw.org and click that big pink donate button.
3: Tune into Cross CrossCurrents
0: tomorrow morning at 11. We'll hear how a fentanyl overdose at a Bay Area high school inspired student journalists
4: to act. This issue was becoming so prevalent that even our bubble of the Bay Area couldn't protect us. The
0: latest episode from our podcast, TBH. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. When you think Pac-12, you think football games and intense rivalries. That's just a few of the things that come to mind. It's an athletic conference with 108 years of tradition. But five schools, including Washington, Oregon, University of Arizona, Utah State, and Arizona State, have announced that they are leaving. That leaves Stanford and UC Berkeley left behind. What happened? And with millions of dollars on the line, what does the future hold for this conference? To break it all down, I'm joined by Mike, Mark Purdy, a sports journalist who's covered the conference since it was the Pac Eight. Welcome to State of the Bay, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And Marisa Njemi, she's a sports reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Marisa.
3: Hi. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for being here. And finally, we have Ryan Sheehan. He's a student reporter for The Daily Cal, which is UC Berkeley's student newspaper. Welcome, Ryan.
4: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: And we want to hear from you, our listeners. What do you think about the breakup of the Pac-12? And should Cal and Stanford remain in the conference? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can email us at bay at kalw.org. Or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So Mark, I wanted to start with you. And um, for people who are not familiar with the Pac-12, what does this athletic athletic conference do? What does it mean for the schools?
5: Um, well, you know, I don't want to I don't want to go over the whole history of college football, but <laughs> you know, a, a lot of people don't realize Cal started playing football in 1886 and Stanford in 1892, and for a while there weren't very many Schools playing football in those in those days, um, but they got tired of playing each other. So in 1915, a group of schools along the West Coast uh, formed uh, what was called the Pacific Coast Conference with Cal, Washington, Oregon, Oregon State, Stanford, so that they could play each other and and have regional games and and uh, and and develop rivalries because it was fun, you know, uh, since the since day one. Uh, Football has been incredibly popular as a college activity, both spectator-wise and participation-wise. Turns out people don't like to hold tailgate parties at chemistry labs. They (laughs) like to go to football games. And uh, these conferences, similar things happened around the country, Big Ten back in the Midwest, so on. And uh, these regional uh, rivalries became popular because people, you know, not just from Cal and Stanford could go to those games, but if you happen to be, uh, University of Washington- uh, student or fan living in the Bay area, you could go to those games too. And it worked pretty well for a while. And then, uh, TV dollars got involved. And now it became more about, uh, well, which games look good on TV. And that is really what participated, And you know, make a long story short. That's really what, uh, led us to what we are today. Uh, people in the, in the, in the Bay area, may still go to Cal and Stanford games, but it depends, it turns out what's more important now is who goes to, uh, uh, Buffalo Wild Wings on Saturdays and wants to watch the games uh they most the matchups they most want well they'll draw the most eyeballs so TV can make the most money and then can pay the schools for those games. What yes. was the question? Yeah,
2: oh, no. Well, <laughs> that,
5: I think that's, that's my that's my Quick roundup. I want not let other people
0: talk. Well, that's a good um, summary. And I mean, I think it all comes down to what I'm hearing you say is it comes down to Buffalo Wild Wings. But, um, you know, it is about TV dollars then, right? So this conference exists um, and the big money comes from the ability to broadcast these games across networks. And is that what is is that the reason why some of these schools left? There was better money elsewhere.
5: Uh, yes. And in, in a nutshell, And uh, if you, you know, the the PAC-12 really broke up, you you know, in the schools you mentioned that left, you, you didn't mention UCLA and USC who pulled out, who announced a year ago they were going to pull out because the big 10 wanted them because they bring the most eyeballs to TV from the LA market, which is the biggest market in the PAC-12 as it stands now. Um, So yes. And what, what really happened was that the PAC-12, Commissioner, the people, the guys who ran the Pac-12, and most importantly, the school presidents misjudged terribly how to handle the TV money negotiations. Uh, while other school, other conferences were getting big money, uh, the the latest Big Ten deal gives each school up to sixty million. The Pac-12 was stuck down about thirty million, but the presidents seemed to think that they were worth more and kept holding out for more. Well, as it turned out. The networks went elsewhere until there was not as much money left for the Pac-12, and they were left to choose between having a streaming deal with Apple TV uh, for a lot less money or jumping to another conference that made more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's that. I hope I didn't make that too uh, complicated, but that, that's really what happened. I, I put the most of the blame on the presidents of the pac 12 schools for uh, mis- mismanaging those negotiations.
0: was Is that a collective that each of these presidents has a single vote and they as a collect as 12 schools were figuring this out? Or was there one person in charge of trying to negotiate on the PAC, on behalf of the Pac-12? I mean, a lot of people say the commissioner, George Kleivakov, is yeah. somewhat to blame here.
5: Well, yes, the PAC-12 uh, presidents designated him to be their negotiator. He is the commissioner of the conference. The guy before him, Larry Scott, did a lot of damage to the conference, too, and some of the decisions he made. He's the guy who said now uh, two or three years ago they had an offer from ESPN for each school to get $30 million and to have that. Money coming in for a number of years ahead. He turned that down on behalf of the presidents with the president's approval, saying, "No, no. If we wait until 2023, we'll get even more money." That turned out to be a really bad choice. Scott was essentially fired. He he, he left technically, and then they hired Klyachkov, who had a more of a TV background, and he kept promising, "Yeah, I can get you more money than that. I can get you more money than that." He failed. Also, but remember, it was the PAC 12 presidents who really had the final vote. And uh, you can talk to people who are smarter than I about who within that room, <laughs> which presidents had the biggest uh, voice.
0: Well, Marcia and Jemmy, I wanted to bring you in here. What does that kind of money, those broadcasting rights, $30 million, mean to the different schools? Is it, is it a meaningful amount of money to Stanford and Cal?
3: Yeah, it funds a, a good portion of the athletic department and especially some of those non-revenue sports and just kind of the ability to do other things. And that's true of almost every Power Five um, athletic department in the country. Like TV revenue is really the the driving factor for being able to finance the department um, other than um, NCAA men's basketball tournament uh, TV rights as well. But it's primarily the football TV revenue money. So um, yeah, it's, it has a big effect on Stanford and Cal and every other school that is uh, dealing with uh, this, Oregon State and Washington State as well. Um, the last remaining Pac-4, uh, PAC I guess, now yeah. teams.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Ryan Chant, you're a student at Cal and you're covering this story for the campus newspaper. Well, how have the students reacted to the breakup?
4: Uh, well, the student reaction, at least at UC Berkeley, has been mostly surprise. Um, I know in our newsroom when that news came out a few Fridays ago now, um, we were all scrambling to, to make adjustments and make edits and everything. And I, I think on that day, five schools left. Um, but um, the student, the, the fallout for the students so far has been slowly realizing that, you know, the the, the culture, the social life associated with many of the big games that, uh, for instance, Cal football plays in a season like UCLA, USC um stanford for now is is spared but we'll see how that turns out but many of those big games are are going to you know stop happening in the years to come and then as well i mean the story about the student athletes i think is is the most prominent um they're very much in limbo because starting in 2024 uh, as things stand now they might not have a conference to play in as unlikely as that is uh, the more likely scenario is they will end up in a conference um Several have been floated, like the ACC and the AAC, um, wow. as potential mergers, um, and that would leave student-athletes, you know, a significant portion of the student body at UC Berkeley, and I'm sure at Stanford, um, to have to travel long distances during the season to really feel the strain of a cross-country schedule. And, you know, their af- academics could certainly suffer.
0: Well, it, it means that rivalries are no longer regional then, right? If you are, you, you're Cal and suddenly your opponents in your conference are in the southeast or the, the northeast, I mean, as you point out, Ryan, that's kind of a tough
4: schedule. Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, just taking the ACC, for example, which has been the most heavily rumored in, in recent weeks, um, Cal and Stanford would be the lone two teams on the West Coast. Uh, I mean, you know, the the Atlantic Athletic Conference is uh, pretty self-explanatory. All of those teams are located, you know, as far south as Miami, um, uh, far east and south as Miami. Um, those would be some cross-country hauls, and I don't think there's a logistical way out of it um, for these two teams, not to mention uh, the potential media rights um, revenue impact on admission into the, the AAC, ACC
0: Mm-hmm. I have mean, one other question for you, Ryan. You were talking about the culture for the schools. You at Berkeley. I mean, everybody knows that the big game is Berkeley and Stanford. But what are the other big moments in in a football season or basketball season that your your campus looks forward to hosting or attending?
4: Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, I think the the California rivalries are, are always big games. Like I mentioned, UCLA and USC. Um, that really does stir up the student body. They like to come out in big numbers. Um, and so when when USC comes to town for the last time this year, um, I'm sure it's going to be a, a really big uh, turnout. And um, those, those are the kind of games that fill uh, Memorial Stadium and obviously the big game. But, you know, moving forward with how uncertain it is, I'm not sure if um, the student section at Memorial Stadium will be full um, multiple times a season. Given, um, given Stanford would be, you know, our only, our only, um, our only partner in the Bay Area. In California.
0: You're going to end up playing Stanford like six times during a season. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. <laughs>
4: right.
0: um, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm Grace Wan. We're discussing the breakup of the Pac-12 Athletic Conference with Ryan Sheehan, a student reporter for the Daily Cal, which is UC Berkeley's newspaper, and Marissa and Jemmy, a sports reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as Mark Purdy, a sports journalist who's covered um, the Pac-12 for the Mercury News, among other public applications. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the breakup of the Pac-12? Are you a Cal fan? A Stanford fan? What do you think should happen next? You can join us by calling 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Marissa, we were talking about um, if if Stanford or Cal- uh, Berkeley were to join the ACC where the schools are pretty far away, that would impact the football schedule. Would that also happen to impact if you were in gymnastics or lacrosse or another sport at these schools? Would you be competing with schools from across the country?
3: Yeah, everything would be affected. So there's a, a couple different options of where Stanford and Cal go, and it's mostly football-driven, as kind of all of this is. But if it ends up being the ACC, sure, football's going to travel a few times a year. But you look at something like women's basketball in the Pac-12, which has historically been one of the best conferences in the country, they're going to end up playing like Thursday night games at Miami or Florida State or North Carolina or whatever, and then you get into the even smaller sports to like extremely not revenue sports, such so as field hockey, gymnastics, things like that. Um, there isn't a gymnastics conference, there isn't a water polo conference, things like that, and even. If those teams aren't traveling as much, if they say like, for example, water polos in the MPSF, the Mountain Pacific Sports Federation, which is outside of the Pac-12, but their revenue is still deeply affected and, and traveling out to the East Coast a couple times a week for all of these teams, men's and women's, Olympic sports, all of that, that's going to affect the revenue. We could see sports cuts potentially. Uh, Stanford's. Tried to do it before they have a few more endowments in Cal um, for some of their positions that finance some of their Olympic sports, especially Cal's and some financial issues um, going back to their stadium being built a decade ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, ACC is one of the only um, viable power five options unless the Big Ten kind of changes its mind here coming up at all um which would give it probably uh, Stanford and Cal probably the most uh TV revenue money for their departments but also For some of those sports that aren't basketball and football, that really could get canceled out by the travel and the other logistical issues. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you know, and I'm not saying that this necessarily happens at Cal and Stanford, but you see in other programs where the football team flies on a charter jet, or the I remember seeing the Duke the, the Duke basketball team had a charter jet that would take them to the NCAA's, and the women's team was in a van, you know, traveling eight hours and taking a long time. I can't imagine, you know, when the Travel costs become, as you say, really expensive. I mean, you can't jump in a van and travel to Miami to compete. You're going to have to fly. I mean, that really does suggest that some of these these sports could be on the chopping block, Marissa.
3: Yeah, and chartering is different for everyone. Like Stanford women's basketball primarily chartered last year. Cal men and women didn't. Um, there's Title IX components to this. If your men's team travels by charter, you're, you can't just, like, ignore your women's team. Um, so, But a lot of... Uh, And for playoffs, too, a lot of these schools will charter to like NCAAs, even like volleyball or things like that will end up happening. But for the most part, you have a team like Stanford Field Hockey. They are charter or they're taking a commercial flight to wherever they are going across the East Coast because there's only three teams um, west of Iowa in college field hockey. So, yeah, there's a lot of (laughs) logistical issues that already kind of exist with the placement of just being on the West Coast and having as many sports as Stanford and even Cal has. Um, And how many of them are smaller sports with um, that are more spread out or have different conferences. Uh, You you mentioned lacrosse Um, Stanford and Cal are the only two Pac-12 women's lacrosse teams standing now um, after all the other schools have declared going to different conferences what happens there that's a big question mark. Uh, the uh, dissolve the Pac-12 dissolving really kind of puts gymnastics up in the air because there are so few conferences that are as good as a Pac-12 that, and there are so few teams on the West Coast that they're going to have partners with even for out of conference to end up in the ACC or whatever. So there's a lot of things up in the air that don't relate to football, and they're kind of waiting to see what ends up happening with football TV money to determine the fate of really hundreds of athletes.
0: Well, we have an email. Joe writes, regional rivalries are what makes makes fans so passionate. To see that be diminished greatly is a real loss for all. Hard to ask fans to travel from coast to coast rather than hopping in a car for a few hours. Having Stanford in the Atlantic Coast Conference just doesn't seem right. Who is thinking about the fans? I mean, who is thinking about the fans, Mark? Does anybody care?
5: (laughs) Well, yes, they care, but it's, you know here well it comes down to this right the school president what they most want it the, the the statement they most want to hear from their athletic department is we don't need any general revenue money we can handle all of our uh sports on our own we don't need any help from the university we can, we'll 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 take care of that through the money we generate right and um that is what has driven the football component to be so much uh, a part of this and I certainly agree with the comment that the listener made. It it really stinks for fans of the team. But again, as I, I, I hate to come back and say it, but, you know, it's not as important now. But since, since, since these schools now receive millions and millions of dollars from TV, it's more important for those TV networks to see USC against Uh, Ohio State instead of USC against Oregon State or even USC against Cal. Why? Because on a national basis, USC, Ohio State draws more eyeballs. There's more national interest in that than USC, Cal. That's great if you're a college football fan in Nebraska or Louisiana and wants to see the USC, Ohio State game, but that – those people now are more important than the local fans who want to go see uh, Cal versus USC. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just a shame what's happened, uh, and uh, you know Marissa's right. Uh, it's going to affect every sport down the line. I think what we're headed toward, too, though maybe, is something that Chip Kelly, the UCLA football coach, said a couple weeks ago: is that he thinks they should just separate football from everything, make that a, a, a football. Conference or something of the top fifty or sixty schools, and then have the other uh, sports form leagues of their own, uh, re on a regional basis. That may be where we're headed in the long run. But these TV contracts all have to run out for that happens. Uh, if you know, but in, in relation to your comment, commenter, you know, I think we learned what um, what the fans are really thought. You know, the consideration of the fans. When they started playing football games on Thursday night on college campuses, when students are supposed to be studying, right. or alumni are supposed to be working, um, you know now uh, or or you have to wait till a week before the the kickoff to find out what time the kickoff is because TV has to declare that mm. and uh, that you know that messes up weekend plans for the fans who are actually going to the games. So um, did that answer your question? Yeah,
0: no, it's a tough one. And, and Ryan, as a Berkeley student, hearing Mark say that, you know, most of America doesn't want to watch a USC Berkeley game. I mean, that's got to hurt right there. Um, do you think that this will cause athletes to want to transfer out of Berkeley? Uh, the fact that if, at least for the next two year or two, it's going to be kind of difficult to be an athlete in the Pac-12?
4: I think it's certainly possible, um, given the... New NIL rules that were passed a couple of years ago in college football, which allows college athletes um, to earn money off of their name, image, and likeness. And so, if you extrapolate that out with going to conferences that have more TV numbers and more eyeballs on you as a player, that certainly would be enticing for players to, 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 lack of a better term, to jump ship from Cal and, and go to greener pastures. Um, I think also there's there's a notable impact on. The school itself, uh, potentially, um, uh, I think there could be a relation between the amount of viewers on, you know, major athletic events and uh, potential applications for schools. I believe Jackson State, um, Deion Sanders, um, former school as a head coach, when he left for Colorado, um, they actually saw a reduction in applications at the school level, um, Mm -hmm. which was a, a pretty, pretty interesting fact to look at. Um, but on the student-athlete level, looking back on that, um, yeah, this could this has the potential to really completely change rosters, in, especially in the major sports like basketball and football.
0: Yeah, people might want to transfer. And so is it is the athletic conference that a college is in? Does that add to the colleges or the universities' um, standing ranking? I mean, does it really matter? You know, just generally.
3: Yeah, I mean, the Power Five schools receive a certain allotment, I forget the exact number, from the college football playoff committee, then they get extra revenue because of just being in a Power Five. So there's a the possibility if Stanford and Cal do not join the ACC, they're not able to go to the Pac-10, or sorry, the Big Ten, they don't um, try to rebuild the Pac-12. They could end up, like, independent in football or in the Mountain West or the WCC, and they would just lose – A significant amount of revenue just by not being in a power five conference. That that would be a huge impact and that affects every sport and every athlete at the school.
0: Right. Well, we have another um, listener email. Ray writes, can you discuss the hypocrisy of the leaders of these universities and athletic departments? They are doing it for one reason only, money. The universities that have the wealthiest donors will continue to control sports that bring in the most money, football and basketball. And who's looking out for the student athletes? Well, this goes back to your initial point, Mark, that it was the Pac-12 presidents that allowed this to happen. Are they getting much blowback? I, I mean, are people pointing their finger at them and saying, oh, my gosh, you guys really blew it? Or is it just a collective, like, we're just still trying to figure things out?
5: Yeah, well, I haven't uh, been in the office of any of those presidents lately. (laughs) I I have to believe that, you know, a lot of the big money donors at Cal and Stanford have weighed in on this. Um, The presidents generally don't do anything huge without consulting with the board of trustees and their biggest donors. So uh, guess what? There is hypocrisy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that's, that's existed for a long time. As I said, you know, these presidents, they they mostly, they don't want athletics department to be a drain on their finances and the university. And if they can come out ahead, even more so, Um, the the gross revenue figures I've seen for this is comes from the uh, uh, the the United States department of education um, that even Cal uh, last year, the total revenue uh, from athletics was 118 million. And uh, I know, uh, and only uh, about uh, less than 30 million of that was from uh, TV, but that $30 million from TV allows them to have some of those uh, non-revenue sports that don't bring in a dime on a table and um you know i i i i do think that there is some existential stuff that needs to be discussed at the president's level i want to believe that these university presidents are having that discussion but uh when they when they get big blow you know you got to remember a lot of the big donors to the universities don't just donate to the athletics they donate to other parts of the universities and uh, so as a school president, you know, you're listening to those guys and women uh, with big, you know, big ears. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, Marisha, tell us what happens next. So we've seen the oh <laughs> of USC, UCLA, but like in this particular in for this particular season, will everything stay the same? And then things change next year. Like what what do we what should we anticipate as fans?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to know what's next. I think we're all kind of waiting for that any day now Um, as far as the upcoming season I mean fall sports have already started soccer started field hockey started volleyball's about to like it's it's full steam ahead for now I guess Um, it will be the last year of the Pac-12 as we know it Uh, USC and UCLA had already committed to leaving now all the teams that aren't in the Pac-4 right now will not be there next year so we're essentially looking at the last year of this rendition of the Pac-12. So not much really happens from here as far as that goes, other than the sports happen and then it's over. And we see where Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State go, but we're all kind of waiting for news as to what conference Cal and Stanford are going to join. If they join one, do they go independent in football? What happens from there? Oregon State and Washington State as well. We don't know where they're going to go. Um. yeah, it's kind of a waiting game for news to happen. Mm
0: -hmm. And the Pac-12 is located here in the Bay Area, isn't it? I mean, do you hear from sources that they're doing a bit of scrambling to try to – are they going to try to get other um, schools to join the Pac-12, Marissa? Yeah,
3: I mean, the Pac-12 now is just those four teams. So, like, it's kind of up to them. I mean – If they were to get, you need to have six teams to have an official conference. So they're down by two. I mean, there's been talk about San Diego State, um, a few other schools who have been interested previously. Now it looks a little bit different. But even then, like the reason the Pac-12 has had the status that it has had is being a Power 5 conference. And even if they were to rebuild and add a few teams, they would still need, there'd be a vote of the other conferences to keep um, the Pac-12 as a power five team, or do they drop down to a group of five or what happens from there? So, I mean, there'd be, if they're not able to join the ACC, there'd be some motivation to try to keep the Pac-12 together and try to keep its status, but it would be very, very difficult from here to be able to pull that off and be able to have uh, something that is worthwhile.
5: And also it is also how much TV money would a conference like that uh, bring in?
3: Right. Is it just Mountain West part two? Right. Yeah. Right. The,
5: the, for example, the Mountain West schools, uh, of which San Jose State is a member, uh, they they get three million dollars a year per wow. school for TV money, compared to the twenty some to thirty million dollars that uh, Pac-12 schools draw. So it's a big.
0: That's a big difference in Buffalo wings. <laughs>
5: that's big difference. And then you, <laughs> and then do you make that up by going to your donors and saying, "Well, we're only getting this much TV money." Let's say the conference at Marissa kind of put together there uh would get maybe 10 million or 12 million per year then do you go back to your donors and say we know you gave millions of dollars last year actually mm-hmm. you yeah. dollars this year so it's, it's 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 a multiple it's yeah. a multiple it's like a, a big rubik's cube in right. forward you know, putting it all
0: together. Especially if you want to keep those sports, as Marissa said, the ones that are not revenue generating alive, you know, which is what Stanford, as she referred to earlier, went through. Ryan, I'm going to give you the last word. What do you want to see in this season? And of course, I think we know your answer to this one. Who's going to win the big game?
4: Well, I'd like, I'd love to see, um, you know, just a celebration of, of what the PAC 12 was, what it hopefully can remain to be in some form in the future um I'd certainly like to see a lot of our students at Stanford and Berkeley to to be passionate about you know all the games that have been happening all the conference games and then of course I've got Cal to win the big game
5: <laughs> in a big way
0: in a big way in a big way well we'll have to leave it there and I want to thank all of you for joining us we were talking to Mark Purdy, Marissa and Jemmy and Ryan Sheehan about the breakup of the Pac-12 thanks everyone
5: Thank you Grace Thank you
0: well, I think we'll have to see each other at Wingstop next. And coming up after the break, we're gonna turn back the clock to eighteen fifty San Francisco and hear why our city was once nicknamed the Paris of the Pacific. Here you can listen to that story right after this break.
1: This is Suni Khaled, news editor here at KALW. In case you missed it, a special election to fill a vacant seat on Oakland Unified School Board will proceed in November. And demonstrators gathered outside San Francisco's ICE office to protest alleged abuses in two detention centers. You can hear these stories, as well as others from our partners at NPR, by logging onto our website at KALW.org. Meanwhile, keep your dial set on 91.7 or KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. This week in This American Life. In 1979, a man went into one of the best psychiatric hospitals in the country. And then,
4: he got a lot worse. One day when I woke up, I thought about, my God, I haven't seen my kids in, oh, in a year. And then I started to weep.
1: This case became notorious among therapists. There's another lesser known story about him. This week.
4: This American Life. Storytime with Hourglass tomorrow at noon at 4 o'clock here on KALW. <laughs>
1: In the
6: 1850s, the world had gold rush fever. People came to California from far away to seek their fortunes, including thousands from France, and fortune or not, they left their mark. So tonight, we're joined by Anne Hitz, who will tell us all about the French influence in San Francisco. Anne is one of the San Francisco city guides who leads the 1850s San Francisco Paris of the Pacific free walking tour in downtown San Francisco. So welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. So, and before we learn all about the French influence on San Francisco, I first wanted to ask if you could just tell us a little bit about San Francisco City Guides.
2: Well, we're a program in the San Francisco Public Library. We've been going since 1978, so many years, and we offer over 80 free walking tours, and have about 275 volunteer guides who do it because they love it. So um, you can check out the website, and there's lots of options.
6: Well, that's a a great resource for San Franciscans, another great reason to uh, be here in the Bay Area and have these kinds of free historical tours people can take. So let's talk now about your specific tour. I know it begins at the Transamerica building on Montgomery Street at the heart of what used to be the French Quarter, which San Franciscans may not know about. So let's start at the beginning here. How does San Francisco even have a French Quarter? How did all these French immigrants make it over here?
2: Well, it all started with the gold. I mean, San Francisco was just a sleepy little harbor. Gold was discovered up in the foothills in 1848. By 1849, word got out, and basically, as a well-known book, uh, book's title stated, "It the world rushed in." So you have to understand what was going on in France at the time. Concurrently, there was a lot of political unrest. There was poverty. There was an anti-monarchist feeling. And once the word got out, I mean, they were, they were promising. It made it sound like you got off the ship and you stumbled over boulders of gold. So everybody wanted to come, including the French. But there were interesting stories about how and why they came. The first boat was called La and it was kind of like the Mayflower of the French population. And these were paying customers. It came in 1849, and they had 50 paying passengers, all men. And uh, that was the first boat to arrive. And they kind of considered themselves the Argonauts of the French who arrived. After that, once word got out the newspapers were just full of gold stories and all these corporations were formed, they raised money to lease ships and people uh, invested in these corporations, which promised great returns. Incredible returns. Most of them were fraudulent, but they did lease some ships. So that was the second wave. The third wave is the one that I find uh, very interesting, which is that the French government decided to have a lottery. And for one franc, you could enter a lottery to get your passage to California and the gold country. One franc. They sold $4 And they had other prizes, too, like gold bricks and things like that. The really interesting thing was this was totally rigged. They wanted to get rid of political undesirables. It was the police chief who did the drawing. So it was their way of shipping people out. That being said, they leased 17 different ships that carried over 4,000 people from France to California. From 1851 to 1853, well, not everybody made it. It was horrible conditions. I think 3,700 made it. Some died and some jumped ship. But that's how a lot of them came.
6: Wow, we're almost like a penal colony. It's like for it's a little, little like
2: yeah, or um,
6: Georgia here and yes. Cuba, the Mariana boat right. lift, and
2: that's right. But but back to why we start at the Trans America Pyramid. I don't know if you know, but. The water used to come up to Montgomery Street. It was all mud and water. So what went out from some of those streets were long wharves. And one which was actually called the Long Wharf went out from Commercial Street, which is a small street that feeds into Montgomery, half a block from the Transamerica Pyramid now. So the Long Wharf was where many of the boats berthed when they could get a berth. And people would bring in the goods and they would arrive that way. So Commercial Street became the center of the French Quarter. And that's why our tour stops in different places there. And
6: why was it called the French Quarter? It seems like it could have been called anything.
2: Well, if you look at a map, they kind of congregated in different parts of the city according to their origin. There was a um, little chili There was a French quarter, a German town. So you tended to stick with your own. And plus, as the years went on, they developed their own benevolent societies. Like the French had something like uh, the version of an early HMO. You paid a dollar a month. And if you got sick, they took care of you. So there was definitely um, regional uh, neighborhoods based on
6: where they came from.
2: So let's talk about some of the
6: businesses in the French Quarter. I've heard some of these names like the Lively Flea, the Red Rooster. Describe <laughs> what kind of businesses. These, well, these don't they sound were. like traditional American businesses here.
2: Well, uh, yeah. as as you know, most of the miners were men. There were very few women. So many of the women who did come weren't um, exactly of sterling reputation. So the men needed some place to have fun. And so a lot of these were bordellos and card houses and things like that. So that's why they have those wonderful names. I love the lively flea. <laughs> and then let's talk about uh,
6: religious life. I know we have our own Notre Dame. Can you talk a bit about the yeah. church there?
2: Well, Notre Dame de Victoire, which is there on Bush, is actually known as the French church. And um, it was founded in 1855, and it's a beautiful church. One story about it is when the earthquake was approaching, I mean, the earthquake obviously happened. It was the fire. It was the three days of fire that was the worst. And as the fire approached, they buried all the church records in the garden, and that actually saved them. And that was a very good thing because City Hall was totally destroyed. So all the marriage, birth, death records were saved by um, the priests at the church. And this church is still um, in operation. It's beautiful if you can go inside. And it's very much a part of the French community and has a school behind it now.
6: Well, and when a lot of people think about France and French culture, they think about food. And of course, California cuisine is in many ways inspired by French cuisine. You think about Alice Waters. And oh, yeah. Learning how to cook in France. But I'm curious what these early French immigrants, how they might have left their mark in a culinary sense in, in San Francisco.
2: Well, as I said, the newspapers were full of um, stories of stumbling over gold rocks. That It was very few people who really made their fortunes. But even though a lot of these uh, French people were expecting to go back, they actually settled here and they found other ways of making their mark, including culinary. And um, they set up a lot of food booths to start because people didn't have kitchens. So they sold food on the street, especially after the earthquake, when even people who had kitchens, they were destroyed, they were selling food. So the other way they made uh, their mark was through restaurants. Uh, the most well-known was Le d'Or or the Poodle Dog. And this restaurant was probably the most historic one. Um, and it was founded in 1849 and um, it moved several times, but it was very much a fixture in San Francisco. At one point, it had a huge ballroom that could serve enormous banquets. And it actually was in business till the 80s. One that more people might be familiar with is Jack's Restaurant on Sacramento Street. And the building is still there. It is no longer a restaurant, but it's a national landmark. I went for dinner there with my father in the in the 70s and 80s. It was very much a businessman's restaurant. And they said that the second floor was used for... Uh, Not so, uh, I mean, that's where the men took their secretaries and they had dinner with their wives downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) That's just one of those slightly sexist stories about Jack's um, old school thing. But there were other people who made their mark, the Guitard family. They're still going. And that was um, Etienne Guitard, who came early, uh, right after the gold rush. And he brought chocolates from his family business in France, and she uh, learned the trade and really made a business going with it. And now they're based in Burlingame, and they supply chocolates to seize candy.
6: Wow, it's amazing to see that through line from this immigration history to today. So let's talk about sourdough. San Francisco is, of course, famous for its sourdough, and it sounds like there's a connection between the Boudin Bakery and the history of sourdough. Can you tell us a little bit about that origin story?
2: Francois Boudin established the bakery in 1849 and they're still going and they were a bread baking family and really got sourdough um, established. It was first located on DuPont Street, which got renamed Grant Avenue. So the story is Madame Boudin on April 18th, the earth shakes, the fire starts, and she has to save the mother dough. And she has the foresight to grab it, and get out of the burning building before everything's destroyed. So, Madame Boudin saved sourdough for San Francisco because, as you know, wow. you need you need the mother dough to keep making the the rest of the dough. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join
0: us next Monday at six when we talk about the state of community colleges. Tonight's show was produced by Katie Colley and Gillian Emblad. It was engineered by David Kwan and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night and thanks for listening. A replay of your call is up next.